I'm Mariana Vieira, and you're listening to a bonus episode of Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode where we'll be exploring the golden days of Piccadilly Circus over the past 100 years. This is part of the SNF Collab, which is Chatham House's project to share our ideas with our audiences in a more experimental and collaborative way. The Collab is supported by the Star Wozniakos Foundation, and the aim is to understand how we can design a better future and overcome some of the current challenges. While this might sound slightly more future-oriented than the episode that we have for today, it is connected through the project that we did on Futurescape, which was a journey through London over the next 100 years. So Futurescape offers a vision of how current trends, technologies and behaviors may develop in our cities over the next 100 years. We have focused on Piccadilly Circus because it's an iconic city center and also our local neighborhood for Chatham Houses Institute. You can find out more information about this on the Chatham House website, which we can link in our show notes, but also on the microsite where you can actually explore and interact with some of the ideas that are put forward in the project. In this episode, we look at how the ideas in Futurescape London connect us to the history and experience of those who have lived and worked in Piccadilly Circus. We partnered up with the Museum of London and with their team of volunteer researchers who are developing new interpretations of the museum's oral history collection. So this collection of archives and past interviews and clips from people that have lived around Piccadilly Circus. The three volunteers have chosen interviews from these archives that represent a small slice of life in this area over the last 10 decades, including voices that may sometimes be hidden behind the bright lights. The themes that they highlight include migrant communities, the LGBTQ plus nightlife, and craftspeople, or rather the nature of work in the city. In what follows, you'll hear from the three volunteers, the stories they have highlighted, and these emerging themes. We'll start with listening to each of them introducing their experiences separately, and then we'll have a group discussion that brings together the changing nature of Piccadilly and the people that inhabit it. First up is Keith Turpin, who worked in Piccadilly for much of the 80s and has brought us recordings of the second and third generation Italian migrants, the so-called Italian Cockneys, from this area. Their stories straddle both British and Italian social and cultural worlds, whilst highlighting overt forms of discrimination that they faced. Here's what Keith had to say about this experience. Could you tell us a bit more about your experience as a volunteer and the collection that you were working in the Museum of London? I volunteered initially because I was working on a project about the museum becoming a dementia-friendly organisation but was registered as a volunteer and then the topic came up, the listening project for Piccadilly. And I worked in Piccadilly for 10 years in the 80s and uh, know the area quite well. So I volunteered. And uh, could you tell our listeners what the topic is within this project that you decided to focus on? We were looking at the archive recordings of the Museum of London and trawling them and referencing them to try and get stories connected with Piccadilly and the wider area, particularly, um, I suppose, in my case, Soho. To some extent, it's a bit of a random process when you start to search under the geographical locations. And one theme that came out that interested me was the migrant stories, if you like, and particularly those of the Italian community who settled They didn't live in Piccadilly, they lived mostly in Clerkenwell, Islington, King's Cross area, but who often worked in the restaurant trade and other trades in Piccadilly. Lovely. And uh, what did you find in the archives? Well, it was a very rich source. We found all sorts of stories. It was really a story of a multi-generational history of people who came across to Italy often in the 19th or early 20th centuries. And these stories were mostly second and third generation people. And it was really a story of their working lives, how they ended up in the professions they did in and around Piccadilly, often starting in completely different trades, uh, interrupted by the war, interrupted by redundancy and how those stories unfolded and the period covered was roughly from the 30s through to the early 90s. 
Well, now I'll play for you a couple of the chosen accounts. And first you'll hear from Fred Ritzi, a restaurateur, talking about the artisans of Jared Street before he became part of today's Chinatown and also the discrimination that he faced as a British Italian working in the neighborhood. Then you'll hear from Eleanor Salvoni and her husband. Eleanor is the or was the legendary queen of Soho who worked in several iconic restaurants and she describes working through and the resilience that it took to have these restaurants operating during World War II. I felt that to give me an opportunity to go into engineering. I remember applying for a job uh, as a car worker. There was a route, I think, in Piccadilly. I remember going there, and this is a sad story, I have to say, being engaged by the manager there, um, fine. Then when I turned up for work on a Monday, and I presented him in my cards, and he could see that I had a, a foreign name, and uh, he said the vacancy had been taken. And I've never forgotten that. I was, uh, what was I then, 15, I think about 15 years old, uh, because I, I found out being an Italian with the name of Rizzi, he denied me the, the opportunity of a job. So he, did, he didn't know your name before that? No, he didn't, no. And uh, well, when I've been interviewed, he didn't take my name. I turned up with my cards on the Monday. He saw Rizzi. And he found an excuse and I was not engaged, so I, had to, I was rather disappointed. I went back home and then my father, going around, we found, he found me a job in Victory Engineers off of Charlotte Street, City Street. Can you tell me a bit more about what Gerrard Street was like at that time? Because it wasn't the Chinese area. No, 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 we had, had the Taylor and Cutter, Taylor and Cutter Academy where it was an exceptionally good school for tailors to learn their, their art and craft there. We had Ugo's uh, 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 on the corner uh, pasta factory where they made their own pasta, and he's still going now. Ugo's in there in, in your way at the moment, is his son there. Then we had uh, uh, a, a shop where they, uh, this, where they had all perfume and luxury soaps. I think they were Coleman's and so forth, where they had some package and they used to sort of uh, box it and prepare it and send it to different parts of the country. We had uh, some uh, some good tailors, some really good tailors. We had uh, uh, two other Italian restaurants in the street. We had uh, one Indian restaurant and we had one Chinese restaurant right down there on the corner. There was only one restaurant, Chinese at the time, and the others were all little work rooms where people were advertising, um, making repairs and so forth, little small workshops. Theatrical costumers there was in the street. There was Doug Allen Adams and Baker's opposite our restaurant uh, where they made uh, bread on the premises, which was exceptionally good. French bread, the bread was well above average. Uh, was, the, was the restaurant affected by, by food shortages? Oh yes, yes, because I mean there was no meat coming in and there was no, uh, I mean there was plenty of sauces like just tomatoes uh, and especially if you use spaghetti you can make lovely tomato sauces because onions, you could do onions for the bases and things. Uh, so that was alright and we used to have Spam um, so we used to have this spam, which we called it escalope bruxelloise, because that was dipped in dried egg, you know, which was uh, diluted with milk, and then um, dipped and, and fried. And you served that with spaghetti. Uh, you had no meatballs or anything like that, and lots of soups and things. So you, the restaurants were sort of restricted. They had a ration. So when that ration ran out, that was it. I asked Keith what he thought of the interviews. What could you tell us about your experience? Why did you choose these particular interviews and why are they important to share with our audience? Well, I, funnily enough, it's partly because I am a part-time London guide and I guide in the borough of Camden and we focused, we did a project and a walk based on an area called Little Italy, which is basically around Clerkenwell Islington area and it's still there today and um, many of the churches and institutions still exist and a lot of these people lived in that area but then worked in 
Piccadilly and the West End. So that was my initial point of contact, if you like. But also having worked in um, Piccadilly in the 80s, I knew some of the Italian uh, shops and restaurants. Uh, there are famous grocery stores like uh, Lina and Camisi, which are still there today. So I was quite familiar. Who doesn't like Italian delicatessens? <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> I was wondering... What other topics did you consider and what this one about the migrant communities in Piccadilly and Soho means to you? Again, it was a strange process because we, rather than going in by topic, we had to try and find narratives and stories that related to an area. So we were searching under sort of geographical locations. And I thought my, my experience was in the book trade I worked in Hatchards in Piccadilly, so I knew the bookselling and publishing world uh, reasonably well, and also some of the big department stores that used to be there, which have gone, like Simpsons and um, Swan and Edgar. So I, I had in my head the idea that I might find stories connected to that world, but basically I didn't, um, because you just don't know what you're going to find. So the the migrant story, the Italian story just was a rich source to, to work with. And I was wondering if we could focus a bit more on the individual clips that we might be playing. So the first one or the first couple of clips, I believe, are the Fred Ritzy ones. Mm -hmm. uh, and he talks about his career or his attempt to change careers within London, uh, Piccadilly. Would you like to tell our listeners what the clips are about as a way of introduction? So Fred Ritzy had two careers, really. He started off in engineering, And one, one of his stories is quite uh, shocking in a way. It's, it's concerning his application to get a job in Roots of Piccadilly, which was a big um, car showroom with also with engineering workshops, I think. Uh, and he got the job, but when he turned up with his papers and they saw his name was Italian, they actually refused him the job and, and turned yeah. him away. He then did find work in um, an engineering environment in Charlotte Street and he did very well and he ended up at a young age with uh, several people working for him and it was I think it was precision instruments quite skilled work but he said it was poorly remunerated mm -hmm. he f I think he felt rather undervalued uh, which was the same case with the other couple after the war redundancy he turned to the what we now call the hospitality industry. And his father opened an Italian restaurant in Swallow Street, which I think, when I worked there, was at least the same premises. It was called Papigalli's Pizza. But uh, his father opened it. It was a combination of the name of two of his friends, I think, something like Peter Mario, something like that. Uh, and then Fred went on to work in um, Gerard Street, And um, a lot of his story is, is about the, the changes in the area. Mm -hmm. He clearly felt that the, the, the area had changed a lot and that I think he felt slightly squeezed out mm -hmm. as uh, the Chinese restaurants and associated shops took over the area. I think something else that I would like to ask, so these feelings that you get from this perception that you get from listening into these interviews... I was wondering if there were any surprising lessons from the clips that you'd like to share. I mean, on the whole question of racial undertones, both the Fred Ritzi and the Salvonis, you know, they suffered hostile, what we would now deem blatantly racist abuse. They were called, he talks about being called an eye tie and spaghetti face. He says they weren't subject to physical violence and he seems quite grateful that they weren't actually beaten up. Or as he says, nobody took a whip to us. But I think they had to, and, and obviously the story about being refused the job, I think that was just an undercurrent mm -hmm. uh, of their everyday lives, really. And then on the flip side, one shocking thing was that they had social institutions and educational programs and trips back to Italy actually funded by Mussolini's fascist oh, wow. government. So there was this flow of money that mm -hmm. was coming to this community from the fascists, as I understood it. Although, of course, they didn't, as children, as they were then, they, they wouldn't have had any inkling. Uh, but, but he actually went back home, funded by these programs. 
Fascinating. And um, it sounds like the, the the two stories that you've mentioned, so the husband and Fred Ritzy, they're obviously not necessarily an unhappy ending, but they really flesh out the struggles of the community at the time. And listening to Salvoni's clips, I was a bit more empowered in the way, in the sense that it sounded like she had quite a successful career. And you really get this idea of um, sort of resilience mm. and trying to, like the slogan, keep calm and carry on uh, during uh, World War II. Uh, would you like to tell us a bit more about that clip? Yes. Well, I suppose of the three, Eleanor Salvoni, in a way, is the biggest character. And she was quite a famous lady. And um, you can find um, articles about her. She was known as the Queen of Soho. She she carried on working in front of house into well into her 80s, I think. And I do have a friend who remembers her. Uh, his father used to take him to be Yankees. Uh, and he remembers her as an old lady. And interestingly, she started in a completely different career. She was uh, a very expert seamstress and dressmaker. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she had quite high-profile clients, I think, and worked for some of the West End couturiers. But again, the war changed all that, and she moved into uh, the restaurant trade. Fascinating. Yes, and some of her stories, particularly about the bombing raids and the rationing and how they substituted spam, for example, for meatballs and created these extraordinary dishes, uh, one of which was called uh, escalope à l'œuf siloise, which sounds very grand, but was in fact spam dredged in dried egg and milk and fried and served with spaghetti. So probably not very nice. <laughs> it really speaks to the, <laughs> to the creativity when it's needed. And I think, so my last question would be, you're obviously listening into these interviews and there's a there's a, an interviewee, an interviewer, and we're sort of repeating the process. It feels a bit like inception at some point. I think my last question would be, what would you like to have asked if you were the original interviewer and if you were sitting in a room with either Fred Ritzi or, or the Salvoni couple? I think I would have liked to have asked how they felt about these two worlds because they used to come in by bus from Clerkenwell from a relatively poor area of London. I think they probably never earned very much money. They went back late at night on the bus, you know, having worked incredibly long hours. And they worked in this very different environment of the West End, affluent. Their clients would have been, not in all cases, because I think, again, I think in the war there was a certain levelling and all sorts of people ate Mm -hmm. in the restaurants and Clearly, the food wasn't wasn't great, but just how they felt, whether they had any critique of the mm. social conditions, working conditions of the time, you get a little bit of that with Fred. But Eleanor and Aldo seemed just um, they all seemed incredibly happy and um, content with their lot. And I'm just interested as to whether you know nowadays people would see them as being exploited and they'd probably be on what we'd now call you know minimum wage zero hours contracts or something like that definitely and it does not come across uh in the clips whatsoever that no you don't have as much a sense of a difficulty as you mm. you might have imagined if you knew their background just listening from uh, elena's stories about mm. the air raids yes and those are very familiar tropes really mm-hmm. you know as you said keep calm carry on keep smiling but it seems it seems genuinely to reflect how they lived and felt. So, yeah, I'd, I'd probably interrogate that a little bit more. Great. Thank you so much. Another area that we looked at was Piccadilly's nightlife and the spaces that it opened up for the LGBTQ plus community. For this, I was joined by Christina Rakova, and she told us about how London has come a long way in its inclusivity, but actually still has room for improvement. So I thought we could start by hearing a bit more about the work that you do slash did as a volunteer for the Museum of London, and how instrumental do you find the Oral Histories Archive as a resource? I'm currently an oral history researcher, mm-hmm. volunteer at the Museum of London. Uh, we've been looking at audios and clips, recordings, about experiences in Piccadilly Circus and around Piccadilly Circus 
and I chosen to look up LGBT community in London. I'm bisexual myself and I had like various experiences and I know my friends and other people. Mm -hmm. So I thought it would be a good topic to choose because there's not many like real representations. It's always this kind of commercial image that people like put out about like the LGBT London life. Let's have a listen to some of the interviews that Christina has selected. First, you'll hear part of a conversation with Peter Thatchell, a lifelong human rights campaigner about a remarkable kiss in in Piccadilly Circus. And then you'll hear from Sue Sanders, a professor and LGBTQ plus activist who describes her experiences in the Soho scene. Lastly, we have a clip from Bekim Barla Jolie describing his experiences as a gay Albanian man working in a patisserie in Soho. We were spectacularly successful in challenging the authorities. You know, take the kissing in Piccadilly Circus. Up until that time, same-sex couples who kissed in public or held hands or cuddled could be arrested for indecency and sometimes were arrested and taken to court and fined. Well, we decided to challenge that and the way we did it was to organise a mass kissing in Piccadilly Circus where we challenged the police If you believe these laws are morally and ethically defensible, you come and arrest all of us. If you don't, repeal the laws or, or stop enforcing them. Well, I can tell you, one hour before that protest was due to begin, I received communication from senior officers at New Scotland Yard, even before the protest began, telling us that from that moment onwards, no same-sex couples would be arrested for merely kissing and cuddling and holding hands in the street. So even before we held the protest, it worked. Because we used the media to shame and embarrass the Metropolitan Police, to expose their deep-seated homophobia, which they knew was indefensible, but it's only when we exposed it to the glare of media publicity that they dared to back down. So not really, I don't, I don't see that many people from our um, country. Mm. I do see, but they are in the gay community, <laughs> some of them, <laughs> gay Albanians. And how did you meet or get to know people from other communities who are not from the former Yugoslavia? I worked in Soho. I worked in Soho for two years in the French patisserie, and it's a really good uh, patisserie that's being going on since 1781. It's very popular. It's called Maison Berthaud. It's on Greek Street. And I became very good friends with the owner of that cafe and then eventually I ended up working there for two years. And that is a centre of, of people from everywhere. I don't, how, how would I describe that place? It's, it's a cafe, but it's also a theatre. It's also a, a home to so many people. It, it's very popular with actors because the owner is an actress. So it's popular with actors, with media people, with with refugees. She's 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 also very fond of Albanians, mm -hmm. so she has a lot of Albanian people working there. Uh, so that's how my real life in London started, really. Mm -hmm. So I was working there, and then there's a pub next door called the Coach and Horses, and then I would go there after after work, and that's where I met my core of of friends in the pub, Coach and Horses. And that's how I got introduced to the, <coughs> to the London scene. Is there any part of London that uh, is your favourite? I, I love London in general. I, I, I do consider myself to be a Londoner now. And this is a city I completely identify with. Wherever I go, I can find something about London to, to, to like. And to dislike as well, obviously. But obviously my, my favourite part is Soho because that's where my adult life has been, really. I spend a lot of time in Soho and I know everyone, that, everyone I know is kind of concentrated in Soho. I asked Christina about how these experiences compared to her time working in a restaurant close to Soho. I think one of them talks about how bars and pubs that are LGBTQ-friendly at the time were actually not as friendly as you might have thought to begin with because the way that they measure this sort of friendliness had to do with being very much targeting 
towards um, white, able, young people. So could you tell us a bit more about that recording, for instance? The way she grew up, she couldn't come out as a queer woman Mm -hmm. because the prejudices people faced and... They had to go through payphones to enter mm-hmm. nightclubs that were for LGBT community, but it was usually for homosexual males and okay. queer women. And she wasn't allowed to like wear trousers or anything that would present as masculine. Mm-hmm. Even now, there's very few nightclubs in London and they're not as friendly to... to diverse LGBT community mm-hmm. is more for the white male homosexuals. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Which also reminds me that, so your second clip was from, or your second series of clips was from this guy named Peter Thatchell, who is quite the the celebrity or the acti- the lifelong activist. And he has quite some interesting remarks. And I was wondering if there was anything in his clips that you would like to highlight for our listeners. I was really like inspired by his clips because he talks about his activism in more of a upfront way. And he done a sitting in Lion, Lion's Cafe where they weren't allowed homosexuals. Mm-hmm. And they done a sitting and because of the sitting they allowed them. It's amazing. If you if you think about the power of their actions and just sort of driving change with like a little bit of bravery and how I think is is it Peter that mentions how they were actually inspired by the black civil rights movement in, in the US and sort of replicating a bit of those those tactics. Yes, I think he came from Australia, which there was no activism there at his time. So when he arrived in London, he was surprised by the LGBT like uh, activism and by the mm-hmm. black rights movement in America and in London. Mm-hmm. That's one of the reasons he wanted to like join as well. I think he found a community where he could be himself and he could be inspiration for others. Yeah. Did you take any conclusions from the aims of these interviews that you listened to? So why do you think they were recorded? It's good to discuss, have these discussions mm-hmm. and for more people to actually hear different life stories. Mm, As yeah. heterosexual people, they they will never experience the discrimination yeah. LGBT face. Yeah, so they bring the issues to the table, sort of like in an effort to start maybe a dialogue. Yeah. I use uh, like social media, TikTok, mm-hmm. and there was few queer women who tried to enter gay clubs that were only for male, and they like didn't want them to go in or anything because they didn't okay. fit the image they wanted yeah. in those clubs. Yeah, are these clubs in, in London? Yeah, they're in London. Okay. So that just goes to show that obviously the clips they listen to are quite relevant and the issues are still very much prevalent in the nature of um, London as a city and Piccadilly um, or Soho. I think, so my last question would be, obviously you were listening to interviews. uh, You were listening to someone being interviewed and now you're being interviewed about these interviews. So I would like to ask when you were listening to these recordings, were there any questions that you had that you wish you could have put forward or that the interviewer had put forward? I would of ask them like what would they do differently if there's like anything they would do differently or if they have like any regrets mm-hmm. not like starting early for for Sue because she started quite late okay. she didn't realize she was a lesbian so quite she, she was in college she didn't know like she could have been okay yeah so I would ask her if she have like any like regrets or if she would have done something different Great, thank you so much, Christine. Thank you. And lastly, Lorraine Abdon Price opened the door to the world of craftspeople in Piccadilly. In the 70s, Lorraine worked as a costumier making costumes for TV, theater, and opera. Here she explains what drew her to looking into the changing nature of work in the city. My first question would be, what work did you do as a volunteer for, for the Museum of London? What did it entail? So we were asked to listen to pieces in their archives, mm-hmm. um, oral histories, and we were sort of asked to kind of listen to quite a few and then see which ones sort of interested us and meant something to us. 
and some they were really interesting and as I'm a Londoner I could have chosen quite a lot of things but because I work in the theatre and in the 70s I was working in sort of Soho and that area it was all about it was John Lobbs really the the shoemakers that interested me because in in the theatre it is such a niche industry and there are lots of kind of craftspeople who work in little workshops or they work from home and they're you know really specialists mm-hmm. and so it was listening to John Lobb and also listening to Arthur Hansen talking about the shoemakers and the fact you know that they were in Piccadilly and St James that sort of called out to me. Her interview clips include first-hand accounts of family businesses producing bespoke shoes in Piccadilly. First, John Lobb describes the different people and their jobs that go into the making of said shoes. And then Arthur Hansen talks in 1989 about his experience working at the Lobb's shoemakers. Well, if we take them in order, you have the fitter who takes the measurements. Uh, he is often the last maker who makes the lasts. Uh, once the lasts are made, the, the last go to the clicker, who... Uh, gives the leather to the closer. The closer cuts the paper patterns for the uppers and then stitches the uppers together from the leather which has been given to him by the clicker. The last and the uppers then come back and are given to the rough stuff cutter, who is the man who cuts out the leather for the soles. He looks after the people called the makers, who often work in their own homes, and uh, They perhaps come in once a week or we send the work to them and they collect the leather for the soles and the last and the uppers, take it home and put it all together. Yes, tell me about the shoe trade in London. Well, about the shoe trade in London, at the time when I, in my my 20s, now pre-war, there was probably 30 shops. Um, There were what you might call some premier shops like Lobs, uh, where Lobbs is now, you know where that is, at Bottom of St James's Street, there was a shop called Thomas. Um, but they've nearly all gone. But in lots of the little side streets, there was a shop. One man, mostly, running a trade. And I've worked with several of them, but there must have been at least 30. And then, of course, the war came and rents went up and now there's perhaps, what, four left. All the little ones are gone, mostly for economic reasons, yeah. But in those days there were surprising, really. Back with Lorraine for her thoughts on the clips. In hindsight, what do you think is the instrumental value of this resource or the, the oral histories collection? I think it is important because we do forget and... You know, I know myself, you know, talking to aunts and uncles, you know, about living in London in the war, my father growing, you know, growing up in London, that it is really interesting to hear what what went on. And even in my my lifetime, things have changed so much. You know, industries have been lost, buildings. I can't believe the buildings that have just disappeared Mm -hmm. since I was a kid. Uh, so you mentioned the topic or a bit of the, the reason and the focus that you decided to take approaching this project. But I was also wondering if there were other topics that you considered covering. Because I live in Clerkenwell, which was home to a sort of big Italian community, there there were some people on in the oral histories that lived in Clerkenwell and there was a lady who was a seamstress. I think perhaps Keith went on to talk about her who went and worked in a, mm-hmm. a restaurant and things. So that was really interesting. And then there was another lady that lived in near Primrose Hill and I, I grew up in Primrose Hill and I went to school in St John's Wood and so she was talking about all the areas that I knew and she she was fascinating. So I was kind of torn, but it was so poignant in lockdown that, you know, the theatre had closed and, you know, all, all those costume makers, hat makers and the shops had all closed during lockdown that I, I just felt that was just really kind of poignant to me. Mm-hmm. 
What was your overall experience listening to these clips? It, the comparison with actually John Lobb, who is part of the Lobb family and who, who's the kind of the boss now, and then Arthur Hansen, who was one of the shoemakers and his father was a shoemaker and he learnt the trade from, from his father. It was hearing like the difference between them and like John Lobb was very formal, but Arthur Han- Hansen was... He just came across as having such a joy for life. Mm-hmm. He was a he was a, a big giggler, and he told kind of like funny stories about Ernie the rough stuff cutter, mm-hmm. and um, the different characters in the workshop. Because when he started going there, he would take stuff from his father. Mm-hmm. So his father would. All of the shoemakers worked from home, okay. and they would go into lobs and collect their work. And then when they've done the work, they would bring it back and then it would perhaps go to the next person, you know, the the person that did the uppers and the rough stuff cutter. And then there would be the the packer. And they all had little kind of idiosyncrasies, which he talked about. You know, one of them, I think, was whistled and the other one kept going. (coughs) And it was just a joy, really, to, to hear him talk about him coming into London as a boy on the train and you know taking the work back and forwards mm-hmm. so yeah that it was it was a real joy it's fascinating to talk about um, working from home yes and and that sort of was the same really for costume makers because okay. a lot of them work from home some have studios but but mainly they're all sort of kind of like cottage industries mm-hmm. you know that they're working from one of their rooms they've turned into a workshop or you know in their now people have built sheds and are working in their sheds and stuff it's almost yeah. like um like a full circle uh, moment yeah and it, it felt like it was a, a continuation yeah you know there are two more questions i would like to ask so one of them has to do with the clips in terms of were there any surprises um as you're listening to them was there anything you heard that you thought was perhaps unexpected or they wouldn't really fit with the idea that you had well, at the time yeah there were there were surprises. I didn't realise that there were so many components to making a shoe <laughs> and so many different elements and so many people that did the different parts of it. Mm-hmm. And also, the John Lobb talks about going to America that because they had a lot of clients in America. And so, I'm not sure... Well, he did it when he was younger. He would go over to America on the ship and they would be there for a couple of weeks and take orders... Um, and I had sort of no idea really that, that that happened and that people went there for years and years and years to get their shoes made. And that was, yeah, it was just very interesting that there were just so, so much was involved. Mm-hmm. Lovely. And uh, my last question would be, so these were obviously interviews that took place. If you had been at there at the initial interviews, was there anything you would have liked to ask that wasn't asked at the time? Ooh, no, I think um, the, inter- the the interviewer who was um, interviewing Arthur, they had they had a, definitely had a you know a, a good relationship and there was mm-hmm. a, g- a good connection between them. And she asked lots, you know, really sort of interesting questions. I think I might have asked John Lobb a bit more about his family. Okay, I'd be quite interested to see the relationships between him and his father and his mm. uncles and and all of that. So yeah. Lovely. Well, thank you so much, Lorraine. Thank you. After we heard these clips, I brought Lorraine, Keith and Christina back together to chat about the connections and overlaps between their recordings and their experiences as Londoners. So... To begin with, you three identified or broadly chose audio clippings that fit inside three topics, Keith with the migrant communities in in London, Lorraine with uh, the craftspeople and the future of work or the nature of work, and Christina with LGBTQ rights and working uh, in bars uh, and pubs around the area. So obviously these strike me as you're you're actually shedding light on issues that were not wildly talked about at the time. And you're bringing back this uh, human side. So I had my first question would be, why do you think it's important to have a human side to, to a city when you're talking about it? 
Well, from my point of view, I suppose because cities are made up of individual people and they are, they are the spectrum of humanity and everyone's story has a meaning and a place. So, yeah, you can't, you can't have a city without people and their stories. Yeah, it's what, it's what makes a city, all the kind of different people who've come from all over the world, come together and make a really interesting place. Especially London being a diverse, one of the diversities, like in the world. And there's not much light shine on that. In other like parts in England cities, it's not as diverse, and mm-hmm. people don't understand the other communities live in. So I think it's more about understanding each other. The other thing I wanted to ask is still related to this human side, is how obviously we're all humans, and you come to these recordings and you approach these collections based on the notions that you already have about these topics. And I wanted to ask if. Going into this project has in any way, shape or form changed the way that you saw the topics that you've chosen to focus on and also your vision or your image of London and particularly Piccadilly. I don't think it's changed it. I think it's made me appreciate it more and having the opportunity to kind of to go into depth listening to the oral histories of all the different people that made up London was just really interesting because it's so easy to not think about it. And all the different characters, the different trades, that was just really lovely. What was interesting for me was that now, if we focus on racial tensions, we probably wouldn't think of them in terms of Italians, you know. And mm-hmm. um, we might think of tensions with maybe Eastern Europeans and the whole Brexit issue and that sort of thing. But it was quite shocking that these people came up against real prejudice Mm -hmm. just because they were Italian. And um, obviously some of them were interned and they had to justify themselves and point out that they had brothers serving in the British Army, for example. Mm. So, yes, I think clearly um, over the course of time, the focus shifts from different communities and ethnicities. I think the LGBT can be themselves now in London than like Mm -hmm. 20 years ago or even like 10 years ago with like pride and everything. But still, there's like still discrimination against them. There was a few summers ago where two like queer women got like beaten on the bus mm-hmm. because they wasn't presenting for the male gaze but I think it's becoming more acceptable for LGBT and other communities in London. So at the same time I'm hearing there are different ways in which you can engage with history and the, and the lessons that you draw will very much depend on the topic so for Keith it's very much about how history sort of repeats itself and it will be different uh, groups that are picked uh, on or there are isolated at a specific instance of history more to do with the external circumstances not so much to do with the groups themselves Mm -hmm. and on Christina's topic it will be more about how there's been some progress and actually looking at this history helps you highlight that even in the current context where it's not ideal but you will see a bit more tolerance that you are more able to highlight because of the things you've been able to listen to in the archives. And it's fascinating. And because we've just started to go into these topics a bit more, I think to start with the future of work or the nature of work, I wanted to ask, what do you make of the changing nature of businesses that can be found in Piccadilly today? Yes. So I I feel that the businesses that were in the centre of London have had to move out of London Mm -hmm. because of redevelopments and business rates um, rents, so I, I do. I feel that it has changed in that way, that companies that had small shops and or worked in workshops have ha- have had to move out of out of London because of all the redevelopment. In that way, I feel that it's changed. I think that's true, but I think there's also a certain circularity, possibly because um, Fred Ritzi talks about all these small sort of artisanal producers who were in um, Gerrard Street. He talks about tailors and soap makers and the French bakery. But I think some of these things are coming back again. We, we're mm. sort of returning to some of these smaller scale specialist producers and makers. And we're in the middle of this new world now with possible food shortages, petrol shortages big supermarkets and big retail parks on the wane. So maybe we will go back to 
smaller scale. I mean, it might be a bit idealistic and a bit unrealistic, but I think sometimes these things come round again, you know. Does that say anything about the customers and the nature of... Because obviously for businesses to come in, in and out of London, it also has to do with the demand. And do you think there is, obviously without speculating, but do you think there is a bit more a change in appetite? Does it say anything about the sense of, for instance, community? Which kinds of businesses you can have in the centre of London? How does this affect Piccadilly and London as a city? I see going around kind of like Soho now, there aren't the the small businesses anymore. You know, for instance, in Berwick Street, there, there, were, there used to be, say, seven fabric shops, but now there's two now. Mm-hmm. Um, one, you know, one of them does have a couple of shops, but there's only two companies now that are actually in in Berwick Street. Whether or not they'll come back, I don't know. Most of them have mo- have moved out. You know, there's the the buttonholers; they're still there, and some workshops. But I don't know whether they would ever get back, sort of financially, in into the mm. the city. I don't know. Do any of you have any thoughts about whether? the government should play a role in encouraging or disencouraging certain changes within the city, either local government or the national level? Yes, I think clearly there's a big transition going on in terms of transport. Private car use is really being squeezed out of London now, overtly or sort of surreptitiously. So I think we've got to explore... um, just new ways of living all, all round, really. I mean, mm-hmm. partly post-COVID, as Christina was saying, tourism dictated quite a lot of London's economy, but we don't know if and when mm. overseas visitors will come back in huge numbers. Everything's up for change now, really. So, yes, I think I think government will have to intervene. There'll be a lot of real estate that's sitting empty because people won't go back to mm. all these prestigious um, offices and whether it's practical to change them into affordable housing. Again, that might be unrealistic and impractical. But someone's got to reshape the city because it's in a state of flux at the moment. I think... On that point, I would like to move to the to the other topic, so Christina's topic on LGBTQ plus rights. Um, I would love to ask, so I was very fascinated by Peter Thatchell's clip. I like how he talks about perf- uh, protest as a performance. And obviously London is the site uh, of uh, numerous uh, protests, whether it has to do with environment, we have whether he was even, I remember the, the one about the algorithms uh, used in the A-levels. And I was thinking, um, I would like to ask you three, whether you feel like activism is changing and whether it changes or shapes how a city is used as a, a place of protest. Uh, there was a video on TikTok about environmental issues. There was a museum, like a pop-up museum set up. But because of TikTok, it got so popular, it got packed. So mm-hmm. I think it's people want to look vogue online type of thing but not actually participate, like take part in the actual mm. activities. Even with like the BLM movement, mm-hmm. everyone was posting like little black squares and talking about it, but they wasn't actually doing anything. So I think it's quite commercial, some of it, and like mainstream, it's becoming more mainstream to look like you're doing something, but not actually doing it. Fascinating. So, in a way, the stage of performance moves from the city or the ground onto social media platforms. What Peter was saying when they were on the streets for heterosexual people, it looked like a performance, and now it, I think moved to social media pr- platforms, mm-hmm. so they can take part in it online, but actually not in their real lives. But I suppose it's it's a mix, isn't it? Because you can. Also, you can group and activate uh, protests and things like the Extinction Rebellion um, actions on motorways and road junctions. You can Mm -hmm. coordinate and organise those things through social media, but still then generate a real Mm -hmm. physical presence. And the other thing is I think it's drawing in more people from different generations now. Mm. Um, It's not just young green trendy right on people i think a lot of older people are now getting very much involved 
because a they feel they're part of the problem it's it's a legacy of our generation and also obviously to try and protect their own children and grandchildren's future that makes me think about whether these acts of defiance sort of bring the community together so the city and piccadilly is a site of coming together whether it's in protest whether it's essentially to drive change did you get this feeling across uh, the clips that you listen to depending on the time periods mine were quite involved in the second world war Mm-hmm. and the obviously the blitz spirit and the sense of community then and i think that probably was the case that that went across some of the barriers social sexual racial that might have been there before whether that was just a, a blip that's become a, a sort of you know a famous war spirit trope again whether that's carried on or could be identified today i don't know I don't think the clips that I listened to were protesting about anything. I think probably my my clips were more the kind of people that were like freelancers and self-employed who mm. just kind of like knuckled down and got on with it and didn't really have a big voice in change. They weren't corporate or anything. Yeah. So, yeah. I don't know, I think at the same time, people that participate in protests not do not necessarily have a full-time job as activists, and the, it's really good to be able to highlight, like you were saying earlier, the, the human side of things, and people could have been craft, make, craft makers and have these social issues that they were concerned about outside of work, so people, I think one of the advantages of having done this project and being able to listen from you three is also highlighting the many dimensions of the lives of the people that you chose to to focus on not just the topics uh, but how they interrelate either with with the present like we were talking about Lorraine about working from home mm-hmm. and all these things I think it's really important to, to, that they offer this complex picture of, of other humans that are not just one-dimensional in a way uh, I had one more question and I think Christine and I touched upon this a little bit but I'd like to hear from you too as well and one of her clips um, I believe it's Sue Sanders who talks about how LGBTQ plus bars and pubs are actually really welcoming, but this is a very performative thing to the extent that the way that they measure this welcoming of London towards queer and gay people has to do with bars that are specifically actually targeting white and able people. So that, that really goes to show who is the target audience, but also I was wondering if that says anything about how we measure exclusion. So who goes silenced and who is unable to participate in, in life as a community, as part of the city? Parts of London are quite looked down on because of the communities that live in them. And then parts of London are kind of pushed forward because of the communities. And you have like Peckham or South London that's quite diverse, but it wouldn't be presented as Chelsea Mm -hmm. they wouldn't be presented in the same way because of the people that live there or what shops are there how the community works there so I don't think it's as exclusive for even like on tourist sites the light isn't shown on these places so it's not necessarily that the stories aren't there it's more that they aren't being told yeah yeah I think that's true um, I mean, I live, I live in Peckham, and it is an incredibly diverse and creative and interesting place. But I think, I think the voices of those places are, to some extent, being heard. Mm-hmm. And maybe places like the West End. I heard someone on the tube today. There's three guys talking about where they hang out and do stuff and socialise. And uh, one of them said, "Well, Regent Street, Oxford Street, so it's just shops, isn't it?" He said, "You wouldn't go there if you weren't going shopping." Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, yeah, but maybe shops as we know them, the whole idea of retail spaces, big retail spaces, department stores, that's probably going to change. So if if the West End is shops and offices, it will have to reinvent itself as something else. And people go to Peckham and people mm-hmm. go to some quite outlying parts of London that once would have been considered uninteresting and boring and mm-hmm. a bit grungy and dodgy. You know, some of them are very, very lively now. So what would you say are the ingredients that make 
different parts of London at one point in time and then in another more or less. And I think if you're just touching upon this, mm. but if there are other factors that you would highlight that make a city. So that we are at this changing point, essentially, and what things would make London and Piccadilly more welcoming to everyone. Do you think sort of less corporate, more like a community, and more people living there, not just coming to work and then go? Mm. Uh, we were actually, I was talking about this with my friends the other day. We were saying there's not really a community where people around my age can go and meet other people, because everyone meets somewhere else and then they go to these like mm-hmm. places and there's not necessary welcoming communities or events that we could like join and meet other people but everything i think is done now more online where you meet them and then you have to have a other ticket or something and no not everyone wants to communicate with you even everyone's kind of in the little bubbles i think in london so people are more isolated in, in a way. I definitely, I think, from a personal note, I noticed that because uh, I moved out of London to just outside about in April and I noticed I used to live in a building in an apartment flat with a lot of neighbours, but it was I always felt very alone anyways. And this day that I moved into this house, there's only like about five or ten houses in my on my road or in the segment of the road anyways. And on the day that we moved, we had people come in with cards and say, welcome, and we are this, and this is our neighbor. And I felt like there was much more that sense that I never had living five years in within London. I don't know if you have similar experiences. I live in Essex now. It was in Surrey, but it was quite near London. But now I live in Essex, and I think people are more, like, welcoming, and there's a community than, like, my friends who's, like, live in London. Mm-hmm. Like, I know more people, and we go out and stuff than she does while living and working in London. I've lived where I live since sort of the early 80s. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we live we live above a barber shop and there's a, a, a cafe and I, I've, I've known those people for years. They, they've seen my daughter grow up. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the, the supermarket across the road. So there... It, you know, everyone knows each other's names. In my building, there's 12 flats and people have come and gone, but there are people that have lived in those flats for 20 years. So I, f- I feel the where I am, like the, the post office, it's Mount Pleasant Sorting Office. It's, you know, one of the biggest post offices. But the people in the post office, you, you know them and mm-hmm. you sort of ask about their families, they ask about yours. So I think within my area... It definitely feels like a community. Yeah, same for me. I mean, I, I'm Peckham East Dulwich, so I'm five, six miles outside the city. Been there since the 80s. And I think, if anything, the sense of community has grown stronger, particularly over the mm. last two years with COVID. And that's mm. partly because, obviously, people have been working and living uh, mm-hmm. more around their homes. And then the fear, of course, is that yeah. the centre of London becomes this sort of, as you say, this sort of post-corporate desert with all this property uh, and shops falling away and tradespeople and uh, retail falling away perhaps so it will have to be refashioned in some sense otherwise we'll we'll have thriving suburbs and a dead a dead mm. city center which is what some people are, are predicting yeah, I think one of the things they were trying to do with this project is obviously imagining a better world and in that sense imagining a better Piccadilly and we've talked about and Lorraine highlighted how we need definitely a bit less corporate maybe and all these changes that can happen but also to go full circle to what we were talking about in the beginning how a city is made of, of the humans there's a question that I would love to ask you all and uh, there's no right or wrong but um, there was one of these recordings which was with a gay Albanian man I think called Beskim I really, I really liked how the first thing that he says is that he identifies as a Londoner. Mm. Uh, before anything else, he's a Londoner. And this just made me think, I just kept thinking about what does it mean to be a Londoner? So I want to put the question to you guys. What do you think makes this distinct identity of someone just proudly saying I'm a Londoner? Well, for me, I am a Londoner. <laughs> and my family was were Londoners. But for me, it it was always being open and welcome to different people you know growing up whenever you came across someone from a different place I you know went to school in central London with girls from all over the world for me being a Londoner is embracing 
the world and, you know, different people. I remember I, I didn't have spaghetti bolognese until I was, like, 17 because in growing up in the 60s and 70s, I never, we never came across that. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, when I was seventeen, having spaghetti bolognese was just amazing. <laughs> um, just em embracing all of those different things. So yeah, for me, being a Londoner is is being open to the world coming in. I definitely echo that. <laughs> I I grew up slightly further out in the uh, about thirteen miles outside of London, and to me, London was just somewhere that was yeah diverse, exciting. <laughs> just so much going on and interesting and as I've got older people often ask there are stages in your life when people say oh, are you going to move out of London then it's mm -hmm. when your children are going to secondary school and everyone assumes that's terrifying and also when you're coming up for retirement and people assume you want to go and get mm -hmm. a bungalow in Eastbourne or something <laughs> and uh, we will think no we don't we want to we want to stay in London and enjoy it more Mm. with hopefully more free time so again we just have to wait and see what the new London looks like mm. we should have this conversation in 10 years time <laughs> it will be very very interesting to see what London has become in you know over that decade definitely I didn't grow up in London more than a part-time Londoner I guess <laughs> but I guess someone like I come from Czech and I grew up like different parts of like England, mm -hmm. Essex, Surrey, been to London. It's, I think London is more welcoming for diversity than smaller cities. Mm -hmm. But I think it's as well having that access to it, to different type of people, different places. Because mm -hmm. like the city town I'm from, I can't get some of the stuff that I could get in London. And we have more different communities that just are there. But in London, you could meet different people like every minute mm -hmm. and go to an alleyway and then it's a whole different place. Mm -hmm. So it's more exciting. But as well, I think most Londoners kind of forget that. Mm, and they just kind of live their lives and they don't really explore the areas, I think. Yeah, no, I think that's very yeah, true. Like I think you have to really consciously appreciate London and, and make the most of it. Because it is very easy just to not do a lot of what London offers. And, um, you know, it does offer an amazing range of culture, food, mm. geographies, buildings, you know, it's all there. So you have to really appreciate it and value it and do what you can to promote it, if you like. Mm. Yeah, that, that in a way that was a nice thing about when we were in really in lockdown was walking through the city and because it wasn't so crowded, you could just go down a little alleyway that you would never have seen before. And uh, it, it, it was really fantastic, mm. mm -hmm. being able to walk down the middle of the street, you know, at, at Bank and things like that. It was, it, was, it was absolutely wonderful. And I think it sounds like you are sort of in agreement about the importance and the value of diversity that London brings to your lives. And mm -hmm. I think that was also highlighted in the choice of clips that you that you picked from the, the oral histories collection. Like the, the people were so, were all so different and had like all these different walks of lives and had these experiences to share. And I think with that in mind, um, my last question would be, how important do you find these lessons from the past? And how do you think they could inform the future uh, of Piccadilly. If you could sit uh, the whole city around you and they would just listen to what you learned from doing this project, what, what was the main lesson that you would like to share in helping the city evolve at this sort of uncertain time? Em embracing diversity, being open to different people. You know, like Christina and Keith and I, we you know never met and we just started um, this project on Zoom. And then today's the first time that we've met, and it's it's just really as if we've like been friends for ages. So, but we're all really different, and uh, so that's really nice. I think London is a city where you can grow, as mm. it grows as well, and you can like explore different sides of you, because of the diversity, the different communities, and like events and everything that goes around. I think the biggest lesson I learned from the clips I listened to was just the resourcefulness and adaptability of people and the way they cleverly negotiated this path between 
retaining their own cultures and identities. So I'm thinking of Little Italy here and the, where the people lived in Clerkenwell and places like that, but also then being able to integrate and, as I say, adapt. Most of the people I listened to, they didn't just have a job, they had this variety of work and they, as one door closed, they just made another one open and adapted and went into different professions. And I don't know if that's possible now. I mean, of course, we work in different ways and people find it more difficult in some ways to get jobs these days. But but then they, they just seemed to be able to, to have this resilience and this adaptability. Mm-hmm. And maybe that reflected their migrant status and, and their ability to override prejudice as well. It's great, and I think it's one that we could definitely pick on for now, and that would be very much something that resonates with a lot of people that either lost their jobs or just trying mm. to find their place or trying to find the place for the city um, mm. in their lives in whichever way it might be in the future. I think it was a great positive note to end and very inspiring, Keith. I think I'll just I'll leave it at that. Thank you so much for joining me today. It was a pleasure to have you three with me and sharing your, your experiences and the lessons that you learned from the oral histories. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for this episode. Thank you so much to the volunteers, Lorraine, Keith, and Christina, for sparing some of their time to talk to us about their experiences, volunteer researchers. If you'd like to find out more about the oral history collection from the Museum of London, we'll link it in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode. Meanwhile, we wish you all a very happy holiday season and best wishes for the new year. Thank you so much for listening to Undercurrents.